Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's a delight to have you all uh, with us this morning. Um, uh, I hope you've managed to find somewhere comfortable enough to, to, to sit. We're going to be quite a, uh, a packed room, I think, today. Um, my name is Brad Staples. I'm the CEO of uh, APCO Worldwide. And we're the hosts of this event, uh, Blockchain uh, for, for Europe. Uh, thanks uh, to the MEPs who are kindly hosting us here in the, in the European Parliament today, and to all of our speakers who are coming from, from far and wide to join us for this, for this session. We have um, an extraordinarily strong list of industry experts, of policy experts, uh, regulators, um, and those who just bring deep insight and um, extraordinary understanding of the developments um, that we're going to be talking about uh, during the course of the conversation. For my part and for APCO Worldwide, the emergence of blockchain into the mainstream of public discussion is uh, exciting. Uh, the potential impact, disruption, and the positive change that it can bring to our societies, um, to our economies, uh, and to public life in, in general creates uh, an extraordinary uh, and stimulating uh, context as we, look, as we look to the future. For the public, though, I think some of these developments can be overly complex, can be tough to understand. Uh, navigating the ups and downs of digital currencies, making sense of security issues that might be emerging around voting systems, or privacy concerns in an age of big data and the emergence of new uh, digital identities. In the end, though, uh, blockchain itself is built on, on trust. Um, in itself, uh, the technology is neither good nor, nor bad, it remains a human network, and, and its success depends on the degree of trust that there is between all parties concerned and the quality of data that is, uh, that is inputted um, into the system. So building trust between, trust between citizens, institutions, government, uh, is going to shape the future in this arena, and I think it's an under, underpinning for our conversation today. I think uh, APCO, particularly in Brussels, realized some time ago that um, informed policy uh, and progressive regulation is going to create a context in which this technology and these developments will thrive. And we're going to talk today about everything from financial services to healthcare, transport and logistics to, to energy, um, and to identity and, and governance. So we have a broad sweep of issues, and we have a mix of speakers who represent all those specializations and those uh, applications. For this session, our first panel, we're going to be talking about governance and blockchain, the implications of blockchain technology for government, governance and citizenship across Europe. And each panelist is going to have five minutes to make a few remarks, and then we'll take some, then we'll take some questions. Let me just introduce uh, our speakers very briefly for you today. Uh, uh, our host, um, uh, MEP Catalin <coughs> Ivan uh, from Romania, member of the Economic Affairs Committee. Thank you so much for, for hosting us today. We have um, Petris uh, Zilgalvis, uh, Head of Unit for Startups and, um, and Blockchain um, at DG Connect. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Uh, we have Paul Astengo, who joins us from uh, Her Majesty's Government in Gibraltar, um, who's the blockchain, blockchain lead for the Gibraltar Government. Uh, we have Louis de Brun on my right, who is a blockchain leader for IBM. Very good to have you with us. And I'm going to hand over to uh, David uh, Seagull, who's going to lead us off with a few remarks, give us our keynote remarks. David is the CEO and the founder of the, uh, the Pilar Project, and many other things as well. Um, David, I'm going to hand to you. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brad. Um, thanks to APCO for hosting this Blockchain Europe Summit and to the European Parliament and the members here uh, for putting this together. I'm going to talk today about the future of government. Turn on. Ah, great. Is that better? Okay. I'm going to talk today about the future of governance. From the 10th to 15th centuries, during the high Middle Ages, Europe had its longest period of sustained economic growth. During those years, the, war the weather was warmer than it is now. The population boomed. It was a time of dynamic invention, stunning architecture, huge improvements in agriculture and food production, the growth of sophisticated trading networks, larger, healthier families, and improvement in the standard of living. Today, Europe is more or less asleep. For the past 20 years, the European economy has grown at an average rate of 1.8%, lower than any continent save for Antarctica. Europe is driving down the road with one foot lightly on the gas and the other foot heavily on the brake. Some of that braking is being applied here in Brussels. In the next 16 minutes, I will present four governance problems and 12 ideas for discussion today. Number one, the great financial crisis. From 1992 to 2007, the US government incentivized banks to lend more than $4 trillion to low and middle income Americans so they could own their own homes. By 2008, about half of all American mortgages were categorized as subprime. These mortgages were very risky, made with very low lending standards. In 2008, when people started defaulting on their adjustable rate mortgages, <clears throat> banks were over leveraged. And when they started to fail, the economy came to a stop. Then something important happened. The Fed, fearing inflation, did nothing to stimulate the economy. The Fed turned a banking liquidity problem on Wall Street into a worldwide financial crisis that put billions of people out of work for five years. Those who suffered the most during the recession were the very low-income people the government had been trying to help. In Europe, things were even worse. The European Central Bank reacted the wrong way to the US liquidity crisis. They raised interest rates, causing a European recession they could have prevented. In fact, Australia was far more pro proactive, stimulated growth, and they did not experience the recession. What if fixing the banking system isn't the problem? Banks just do what the rules allow. Banks are rent-seeking middlemen whose franchise is protected by law. What if half the problem is the governance of banks? What if the other half of the problem is the governance of our money supply? Two, anti-money laundering. Anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing laws. Do they really work? Here in Europe, we spend about 70 billion euros a year to seize about 1 billion in assets. That's about 1% of all money actually laundered. 70 billion euros a year to seize 1 billion. AML is a barrier to entry, removing small, nimble competitors. The largest banks love AML, yet it is a contender for the least effective reg regulatory intervention ever anywhere. What if the real reason for most regulation is to make politicians look tough on crime? Three. GDPR. Have you noticed that getting Wi-Fi at airports, hotels, and cafes is now open? You don't have to give your phone number because they're too scared of GDPR. 
These open networks are now making the public easy prey for hackers to get their passwords and data. GDPR also threatens many other key parts of the internet and systems we use every day. Let me ask you, seriously, how many EU governments are fully e GDPR compliant right now? Can you name one EU government that is fully GDPR compliant? How many EU governments will ever be fully GDPR compliant? What if regulation does more harm than good? Four, voting. There are many ways to vote. People like me who study voting theory show that there are far better ways to vote than the mechanisms we use now. For example, there's a new app that lets citizens give feedback on each issue as it comes before Parliament, so members can take the pulse of the electorate before they cast their vote. Does that help make good decisions? Most people, including MPs, don't even read the legislation they're voting on. It's very difficult to come to a balanced view of the facts, the details matter, and the numbers are easily gamed. Blockchain will allow us to build tamper-proof voting systems. Yet digitizing and decentralizing existing voting methods will give us the same results we have seen in the past. What if voting isn't the problem? What if representational government is the problem? I think if we were starting over, we wouldn't design today's systems the way they are at all. I'm now going to give 12 new concepts that may help us take our foot off the brake and get Europe going again. The first is skin in the game. Nassim Taleb says, bureaucracy is a construction by which a person is conveniently separated from the consequences of his or her actions. Without skin in the game, regulations and rules get more complex and less relevant. This collective complexity, everyone adding something in, is choking our economy. We need a more competitive atmosphere. We must become more agile. We must do experiments, fail quickly, learn and adjust to new realities on the fly. Skin in the game taking responsibility for successes and being penalized for failures will outperform rules and regulations that are hard to change. Now, let me give you an example. Have you heard of quadratic voting? <clears throat> There's a way to vote where everyone pays to vote. You pay two euros to cast a vote, everyone. Now, there are two interesting rules on top of this. The first is that every successive vote costs twice as much as the, first, as the one before. So the first vote will cost you two euros. The second vote will cost four. The third vote will cost eight, the fourth vote will cost 16, and then your 10th vote will cost 1,000 euros, your 20th vote will cost a million euros, and your 30th vote would cost a billion euros. Now that puts skin in the game. That means if you really care about something and you want to put some money behind it to try to influence it, if it wins, you win, and if it, if it doesn't pass, you lose. There's one more rule. All the money that everyone contributes gets split evenly across all the people who actually voted. So if you do vote, if you pay your two euros, you're going to at least get two euros back. And this aligns all the incentives so that people who want to put their energy into influencing the vote have to do it with skin in the game. This is called quadratic voting. It's just one new idea that lets us use smart mechanisms to more accurately direct policy decisions. There are several more in a fascinating book I recommend. It's called Radical Markets. And I hope everyone here will read Radical Markets. Second, self-sovereign identity. We need to design for the consumer. A self-sovereign ID means you own your own identity and you manage it. 
If you move to another country, you include the new details in your overall identity package. Decentralized identity without middlemen is going to be a fundamental pillar of the digital economy. Like Microsoft and United Nations, we should create programs here that support self-sovereign digital identity in Europe. Ownership. Many institutions today are designed simply to hold things for us, and the law requires them to be middlemen in many transactions. Banks are middlemen for money, stockbrokers and settlement companies are middlemen for securities, Visa, MasterCard, and Western Union are, settlement, are middlemen for the transfer of money of payments. Mortgage servicers extract rent from mortgage payers. All of these middlemen charge huge fees, yet we now have the technology to own things directly and securely, and payments can be made automatically using software without middlemen. The problem is that the law doesn't let us. We need to redesign ownership from the bottom up. Market design. We need person-to-person -person markets rather than regulated markets with middlemen. Let me give you an example from insurance, okay? Insu the way insurance works is we have investors on one side and natural buyers of insurance who want to transfer risk on the other side. In the middle, we have insurance companies that make products and market and sell them, okay? But what if we took out the insurance companies? What if we created a set of risk contracts that the investors could enter into and the buyers could just buy whatever contracts they need. They could buy any number of small, medium, or large contracts. They could even adjust their risk exposure daily by going to this marketplace to pick up whatever insurance they want. Now, by doing that, the market will shake out bad actors and clear prices. All the government has to do is enforce contract law and stay out of the insurance business. Another example is auctions. Auctions reveal preferences and allocate resources fairly. We auction spectrum. We should auction many more things. That keeps government out of setting prices and lets markets determine the real value. For example, governments shouldn't have cafeterias. They should just rent out the space every two years and let entrepreneurs serve the food. We should not have lifelong uh, people working in cafeterias who don't get fired if the food is terrible. That's another way we could use auctions, and there are many other ways to use auctions in government. We should have central bank digital currency and automated monetary policy. In 50 years, we'll certainly have central bank digital currency. I believe we're now on the verge of having the technology to transfer money to a new platform, one that will be cheaper, faster, and more secure. We should commit to central bank digital currency by the year 2025. Along with that comes prediction markets. Prediction markets are not recreational gambling. Prediction markets provide real-time information about the future, yet they are highly regulated and often illegal. We should enable markets to give us accurate predictions rather than paying experts to get it wrong. We could use a prediction market, for example, for GDP to predict the growth of GDP that would feed into an automatic monetary policy using an algorithm rather than using old survey data and human judgment. Governments should start using prediction markets immediately to get better information and set policies accordingly. Personal data. We shouldn't be regulating third-party handling of personal data. We should be creating a new framework that allows people to collect and use their own personal data for their own benefit on their terms. We should be designing incentives to encourage people to learn to manage their own data and be responsible for that use. We shouldn't be trusting all our data to large corporations and governments. 
Today, the Chinese government is already using personal data to censor people, preventing them from getting access to good schools, hotels, airplane tickets, visas, and even dating sites. That's happening right now in China. We must work hard to reverse these trends. Adaptability. The world is moving faster and faster. Algorithms are already making many of our decisions for us. In the future, algorithms will help us learn what to buy, what to learn, what to watch, where to go, whom to meet, what not to do, and much more. They will drive us around and take care of our kids. The best algorithms will do the most for us with our own data, giving us time to do other things. We will want a free market for algorithms and third parties who can verify that those algorithms are safe. We will need to learn how to govern algorithms. Mechanisms and incentives. An example of mechanisms is data markets. We could create markets for all kinds of data, from personal to corporate and industry to government data. Markets will let us exchange value by exchanging data. So one of those mechanisms would be income tax. If we tax income, people naturally are incentivized to earn less. If we tax spending, on the other hand, people will be incentivized to earn, save, and invest more. Governments, governments can still get the money they need, and people will still buy goods and services, but the incentives will now be properly aligned with making money rather than putting on the brakes. And we will spend far less collecting taxes because smart contracts can collect taxes for us. In fact, we could reduce the cost of tax collection by 90% using software and <clears throat> consumption tax. Simplification. We have to make it profitable to eliminate and reduce the number of words in legislation and contracts in regulations. We should focus on higher out level outcomes and evidence rather than processes and paragraphs. We should make all machine, all documents machine readable immediately. Right now, there is every incentive to add more and no incentive to subtract. And finally, and I think by far the most important thing I want to say today, we should maximize the sustainable rate of economic growth. The purpose of governments in the EU should be to maximize the sustainable rate of economic growth. The difference between 2% per year and 3% per year, compounded over decades, is staggering. China has been growing at 9.5% for 25 years. It will soon be the world's largest economy. You understand that 20 years from now, China will be the large, larger than all the rest of the world's economies combined if it keeps growing at that rate. You don't have to manage the details if you have a growth rate like that. So to wake up from our long economic map, nap, I argue that almost all European government officials and offices should have the, the annual APR, the growth rate of the economy, of the GDP, on the wall in front of them, every, updated every two weeks. And they should be focusing on sustainable economic growth of 3% per year. If Europe can grow at 3% per year, we will automatically have better schools, better transportation, better health care, live longer lives, have cleaner air, more sustainable food and energy, safer cities, and low-income people will enjoy a higher standard of living across the continent. Immigrants are actually part of this solution. So are the technologies we're here to discuss. There are risks if we don't go down this path, but I believe the risks are greater if we don't. 
We must take our foot off the brake and embrace new ideas before we embrace cool new technological solutions. If we can do that, if we can learn to think new thoughts before we design the next generation of systems, we can have the Europe we want for the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, I think that was provocative and, and comprehensive, and it's exactly what we needed in terms of introductory remarks to get us, to get us started. I'd like to turn to our host next, if I can, to Catalina. Ivan, to um, say, a few, say a few words and possibly give a slightly different perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will be uh, very short because I'm just hosting the event. Uh, and I'm a politician. I am supposed to be here to learn more from you and to understand better technology in order to create uh, proper rules. Uh, so. Um, We've had a long list of debates here in the European Parliament about blockchain, and we try to understand it. Uh, we had discussions about uh, democracy in digital era in order to understand how public institutions should look like in the future. Uh, the general idea was that if we, uh, we don't need blockchain if we want just to improve our institutions as we have them right now. But if we uh, get uh, to the conclusion that we really need blockchain and we want to use blockchain, that means we need to reinvent everything. So the, the first question is, uh, do we need blockchain? Because if the answer is yes, the second question is, are we prepared to reinvent ourselves, to reinvent our institutions? Uh, to, to reinvent the way we live our lives on a daily basis. <clears throat> uh, I think for the moment uh, we are not yet there and we should create uh, small pilot projects to understand better the technology, to see how it works, and uh, nevertheless to build trust on this technology. Uh, as a politician, I can do only my part in this matter. So we created in Romania, I created with, with uh, some friends, a political party, a political organization on blockchain. We reinvented uh, political parties and we use blockchain to, to work inside, to, to introduce meritocracy through technology, we say. We gave uh, to all our members a voice, a voice which is a different, naturally, we have different voices, but this voice inside the party is built, uh, is calculated by algorithms and uh, AI uh, in um, having two uh, uh, pillars, let's say. One is uh, uh, the political activity the member is doing on a daily basis, and the other one is his uh, uh, professional performance, his relevance in different topics, because some are engineers, some are doctors, some are uh, very good uh, professionals on education and, and things, like that, uh, things like that. So. We don't have the same, our voice is not uh, 
uh, has, uh, has not the same relevance on uh, all the topics we are discussing inside the, the party. So the vote inside the party is not equal. equal. Depends on the topic we are discussing and depends also on their... So it depends basically on their voice. If they have a stronger voice, they have a stronger activity inside the party, uh, uh, then uh, their vote will mean much more. But if the topic is on health, those having a more relevant voice on health uh, will have a, a, a bigger uh, vote to cast. So we try to play with the ideas to think new thoughts, like you just yeah. said. And uh, we, we'll see how it works. We have elections next year for the European <laughs> Parliament. We want, we want to bring this new political organization on uh, to win elections, to, to get into the European Parliament and to have it here to fight for blockchain for a new Europe uh, as we talk about it right now. So, I will end my intervention saying that we need more pilot projects. We need more small projects in different fields to understand it better, to, 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 to build trust on, on this technology. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we had a vision of what Europe might look like with radical and profound change, and then a question about whether or not we're ready and uh, ready for pilot projects. I'd like to move on to our third uh, speaker, if I can. Um, so, um, Petris uh, Zilgalvis, if you could say a few words from the Commission's perspective, that would be fabulous. Gladly. I mean, our approach is that uh, blockchain is actually the first, uh, the ideal technology for the European Union because it's multi-level governance, as our system is. So with the European blockchain services infrastructure, we're going for a big project, a cross-border, across the continent, all member states uh, infrastructure, which should launch already next year with connecting Europe facility money. Um, we're going to start with nodes in the, for the moment, 28 member states and the commission. Um, and then it would move to, in the future vision, nodes in all the regions, in all the cities. So it would be a permissioned but decentralized blockchain. Uh, utilizing also something that was just announced on the 20th of November by our Commissioner Maria Gabriel, the Blockchain Roundtable, a private stakeholders alliance to put forward blockchain, also the permissionless, completely decentralized ones, as well as looking at the permissioned ones and interoperability questions with them to have a whole uh, system of blockchains, which could be part of the next generation internet. We have a vision for a dynamic ecosystem. This started with the, the FinTech Action Plan, which had uh, actions on a FinTech lab for introducing more rapidly financial innovation in the EU, obviously in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, we think FinTech is one of the answers and have been behind that uh, since these developments started, you could say 2013, 2014, obviously earlier in, in many cases and depending what the definition is. Also working on standardization in the same blockchain along 
along with these, how to say, more rapid actions. We're working actively in Technical Committee 307 at ISO, which on a global level is looking to deliver blockchain standards. But I mean, I think the first will be about 2021, which is why we already want to work with private stakeholders on informal approaches in the meantime. We'll have this blockchain services infrastructure where we've already chosen uh, use cases, which will be primarily in the reg tech and in the certification and notarization of documents such as diplomas and uh, work qualifications. In the reg tech area, it'll be sharing of regulatory registers across all the member states. And it's not only an exciting, you could say, if I can use the term uh, industrial policy and an innovation policy for Europe, but it's also very efficient. Uh, we have a proof of concept which shows 30% savings for each member state. We have 61 regulatory registers. So if we move in the cases where this is justified to have those on the blockchain, it's already a great savings. As I said, a decentralization, this is an approach that we don't have silos of data in Brussels, which is something that as a single point of failure of cybersecurity is not ideal. And it's also not ideal with our political philosophy because we're, how to say, for a united Europe, but not for a centralized Europe and certainly not in Brussels. The power lies with subsidiarity with, uh, with the peoples of the, of the EU. Um, so what do we have coming up? We should be finalizing the functional specifications and the governance of this European blockchain services infrastructure. 26 member states and Norway who are involved. I think Liechtenstein is about to sign up as well. So we have more EEA countries who it's open to signing up. Uh, as I said, we would be in the Connecting Europe facility next year. There would be a call. There's a research call open right now on EID, the once only principle and blockchain for about 10 million euros. So take a look out for that if you're, if you're researchers or linked to stakeholders who would like that. We also want to improve the capacities of the blockchain with things like the consensus mechanisms, time stamping, scalability. So there'll be another uh, 16 million or so of research money coming up after that. And in the Digital Europe program, we are putting also more money behind blockchain, which we see as, again, one of the ways that we can better deliver digital services, but also collaborate better with the private sector. One of the first things that came from this roundtable, as it was well mentioned, is that uh, especially the banking and the finance sector would be interested in reporting on, for instance, anti-money laundering and know your customer, perhaps collaborating in this area, utilizing blockchain and utilizing collaborators with the, uh, with the regulator on the chain, you could say. Uh, another thing which is in the future, the blockchain, the e-government blockchain would in the future, probably not with these first use cases, but fully be utilizing smart contracts and probably tokenization, which could be a digital euro, either issued by commercial banks or by even central banks on the chain, though that might be a, a further development. Uh, we have a, a discussion very actively all the time on that. And then finally, and which is also good in an audience like this of many esteemed experts and stakeholders, we are looking for the next commission when we have a new parliament and a new set of uh, political leaders, uh, what some of the options might be on the table for the legislative area. Firstly, and most importantly, removing mar barriers to blockchain. If in the sectors that you're working, there is legislation or requirements that have a single monopoly way 
or a single way to register transactions, which would uh, put a barrier in the place of uh, having a blockchain competitor or a blockchain option. We're trying to identify all these cases. Again, it's always up to the next political leadership of whether to act or not, but we're analyzing it right now. Also, smart contracts in the interest of having recognition across borders, also questions like revocability, if there's force majeure, things happen in the world, uh, which physically may uh, impact on that, but again, in a pro-innovation enabling way. Um, also, and finally, in the tokenization, especially the so-called utility tokens and consumer tokens, how we could make those work for decentralized systems to work better in Europe, also how investment could happen in those more easily. And then finally, just on that subject, we are not where I am in my part of the uh, FinTech Task Force, the digital single market. We're not addressing the security tokens. That's being looked at right now by the European Security Markets Authority and the member state security regulators who are going to issue an opinion, I understand, on the 18th of December. And Peter Kerstens this afternoon, my co-chair for the FinTech Task Force, might say a little bit more about that. Wonderful. Um, thank you, uh, Petrus, for that. Um, I'm going to get the last perspective from, from, a, from a government point of view and, and turn to Gibraltar, if I may, and to one of the economies that's perhaps the most dynamic in services in Europe, very sm small but dynamic economy. And, uh, and, and Paul, I'll ask you to say a few words, if I can. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm going to touch on two things initially, if I may, because um, I think we've got a lot of stuff to, good stuff to debate uh, uh, as the morning progresses. But certainly, just to give you a little bit of an outline of where we are, where we come from, and where we intend to go. Uh, and underpinning that, I think, is, you know, we, we, we have to consider at the very highest level what makes humans great. Uh, and one of, the, one of the aspects that makes humans great is the fact that they can look at innovation, they can look to change, and, and dynamically alter their circumstances to what may be needed at different times. All forms of innovation are disruptive by their very nature. Uh, so there's a lot of fear words that center around this uh, this particular space that I think could be applied to absolutely anything that's happened in the history of man. And I always look at the, in particular, one of the examples I give is the Kitty Hawk, the first plane manned flight. You know, if you were looking into the business case and saying, uh, and you're standing there when, when it took off and you say, would you pay some money to go on this? I certainly wouldn't. Uh, and most people wouldn't, I suspect. And then when it went the uh, 200 feet or 300 feet that it went, it'd say, well, what was the point of all that? But if you then jump forward to where we are today with aviation, you can see that those innovators who are trying to disrupt have achieved something, had started something at a seed that has, has ended up in something that's been very, very worthwhile. So, you know, when, when we start with this uh, and people say, oh, the blockchain isn't advanced, it's nascent, it's new, it doesn't do anything, it's slow, let's take it all in perspective and let's, let's nurture this and see where it takes us. So, uh, about four years ago, we, uh, I was hounded in a, in, a, in a conference in London, which was about e-payments and e-money, and I spent two days with a queue of people wanting to speak to me and wanting to know what the government's position on Bitcoin was. We didn't have a position on Bitcoin. I'd heard about Bitcoin, but very little. Um, so, um, uh, under guidance from one of the people there, I went, went back to the hotel at the end of the first evening, Googled Bitcoin, as we all do, and all it was was bad news. People hanging themselves and hacking and black and oh, terrible stuff. So I went back and I saw the person very early in the morning, in fact, um, and I said, you know, 
what, what, what did you try and tell me yesterday? What are you trying to show me? Because this is all I can find is bad news here. So I got some guidance uh, from the person and uh, started looking in the right places to see what, uh, what happened. So uh, after a while, uh, Albert Thiesler, who's the Minister for Commerce, which includes financial services for the government, to rule to set up a working group. Uh, I co-chair that working group, and it started off as the cryptocurrency working group, but has now evolved into the DLT working group. Um, the first thing that we, we realized is that none of us knew anything about all of this. So we had to go through a journey of learning. So we reached out to the private sector. We reached out to where there was some information on the public sector. But more importantly, we reached out to the innovators all over the world and said, what are you, what are you people doing? What are the benefits? Why are you doing it, et cetera, et cetera? Why not? Maybe that's better. Um, so we learned. We went on a, a long journey that resulted in, after a number of public consultations, a regulatory framework for DLT firms, a DLT provider's licenses is what is offered. Uh, if, you're going to look in, you, if you're looking to use DLT to store or transfer value belonging to others. So that's the very concise definition of what we're doing. That legislation came into effect in January 2018. It is the first of its type, uh, and it has three main, uh, three main points to dispose. Uh, it's a principles-based form of legislation rather than a codified type of legislation. So those principles will allow us to mold this and grow it and change dynamically as the, as the industry changes. Uh, but the three things that we're looking at is uh, very important to us to protect the, the reputation of, of the jurisdiction. Uh, the second thing is to protect the consumer. And the third thing is to give a platform to those very, very clever people who can create this technology, who can develop blockchain uh, and other elements uh, to that and create something that's good for everybody. So that could be within financial services, which is where it first started. But uh, through that journey, we've realized that there's a huge amount of potential benefit across our social lives, uh, across philanthropy, uh, uh, and, and we think that it's something worth investing in and supporting those that are trying to create something from this new, new technology. So we, we have a regulatory framework. We now have licensed firms. Um, uh, we're still part of the EU, um, uh, <laughs> so I suppose we're the first in the EU to do that. Um, uh, we looked at it partly defensively because there were people transacting in Gibraltar and we had no handle on what they were doing and who they were. So we now have some uh, an ability through the licensing process to see exactly what they're doing and, and bring them in within a framework, like I say, that is both supportive to them but allows us also to make sure that we get the, keep the bad actors out of that. Quality, not quantity, although there's a large quantity of very good quality, we wouldn't say no to that at all. But certainly we're looking at, uh, in keeping with the, uh, our past performance on the e-gaming side, for example, looking at a small number of very good companies that have very good ideas that can give a wide range of benefits. Um, we're just about to uh, publish a bill which will cover token events, so ICOs or whatever, you, you, however you prefer to to describe them, uh, and that will once again bring a framework within that space and bring some control and order within that space whilst uh, supporting what is a very, very good form of uh, firms raising money in order to fund their, uh, their, their innovation. Um, following that, we're going to take a close look at the crypto fund space and see whether there's anything that we need to do as far as that is concerned. And in terms of the overall structure within the government, once again, working with the private sector and people that are very knowledgeable, uh, we have started uh, a working group, which I also sit on, 
which has just delivered its first courses. And it's a combination between the government, the Department of Education and the University of Gibraltar working with some of those firms that are licensed or being licensed in the process of being licensed. So we're delivering education across all the different ranges for all types of blockchain uh, type of subjects as well. Um, uh, and the final thing that, that, uh, that we're doing in terms of creating that environment, that ecosystem, is we will have on Thursday the first meeting of something that's called Gant, G-A-N-T. It's not the clothing firm, um, although that makes the merchandising very easy for us. It's the Gibraltar Association for New Technologies. So once again, it's a private sector representation uh, of firms that are either in new technologies or advisors to firms that are in new technologies in order for them to create this think tank so they can make representations to the government, so they can look at how we market this, how we, how we grow, uh, and make this an even more successful uh, part of our day-to-day part of, part of -day lives moving forward. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Paul. I, mean, I think we've saved our um, corporate perspective to, to, to the end. I think we've heard from governments in different forms, all suggesting that they're innovating, trying new things, trying to trial and create a new context for this technology to thrive. What's it like from the business point of view in, in, in Europe? Or, uh, for, uh, sorry, Lewis. Thank you. Um, and this was, um, these were some very interesting views and very valuable uh, insights in, in what's happening in countries on the, and at the European level, of course. Very, very happy with those developments as well. And um, very much uh, in, in line with, uh, with what we're, uh, uh, from, a, from a business level, uh, are seeing happening and, and, uh, and are needing. Um, 1916, 2016, 2017 were uh, the years of uh, developing technology and doing pilots. Um, we're still doing a lot of proof of concept, but we now also see in, um, in 2018 lots of uh, operational uh, blockchains um, coming alive and uh, we have we, we have these trade lens initiatives on in the um, uh, uh, supply chain area food trust uh, that's coming up uh, and we trade is another development so there are real uh, operational blockchains taking shape and this is also the moment that there has to be the framework for for governments and at the supranational level uh, to make that possible so um, uh, things are coinciding and, and and the views that we see uh, are, are very important for that because uh, now uh, the, the truth of, uh, of uh, is, of course, in uh, of the pudding is in the eating, and, and that's what we're seeing happening now. Um, there are enormous potentials, uh, as, as uh, David also says. We we have to be bold, and we have to uh, look for for dress, uh, dramatic new changes uh, to to keep up with with international development, go beyond Europe. And um, uh, blockchain offers indeed a very good uh, potential for that. Um, uh, there are also um, major uh, issues to be addressed for, for individuals. Uh, we, uh, of course, have, have seen the, the dramatic developments with, with platforms that have, um, have, have done a lot of damage to the trust that uh, individuals have in how their data is being managed. And um, self-sovereign uh, identity, uh, using blockchain technology for that, can, can bring enormous advantages. So um, the GDPR um, uh, uh, laws that are coming, have come into place need support for that and uh, the, the developments that also um, Peter has mentioned uh, could be very good uh, uh, um, foundations to make that really happen and really may understand for citizens that um, uh, European Union and technology like blockchain can really bring uh, a much more faith in, in, in what we're doing and how we can live. So, so 
the corporates are also seeing that, that opportunity and that value and importance for acceptance for these new technologies. Uh, at the same time, big events uh, like, uh, like uh, just being mentioned by um, um, uh, Paul Stengo from, from, from the G Gibraltar, uh, big events happening. And um, if there's one technology that can help us to, uh, to um, cross over jurisdictions and have seamless trade uh, that, that's possible across jurisdictions where trust is inherent uh, to the system and not something just that, that, that you have to have in each other, but that is really system provided. Blockchain is the technology for that. So I think um, that is something that uh, the infrastructure that's being built on uh, in Europe and in various countries uh, can enable, uh, can also facilitate that uh, uh, these changes uh, will come about as, as smooth as, as possible and, and will deliver also an enormous opportunity for that 3% growth that uh, our neighbor said. I think you're, you're absolutely right that we have to strive for, for growth. and. And these sort of technologies are, are perhaps not the drivers, but they are absolutely the facilitators to make that possible. So algorithmic uh, implementations um, uh, and, and also on blockchain with smart contracts are absolutely uh, required for that. Um, uh, interoperability, it was mentioned also um, before, absolutely important. Um, uh, we, we, we work with, um, with, with various technologies, open technologies, mainly permission technologies, um, but interoperability and um, whatever we do is, is essential to make this all work, not just between blockchains, but also between other technologies. So um, the, the, these are very promising and good developments uh, from, from a um, corporate perspective. And uh, also what we see is now that in the blockchain projects that are becoming opera operational at the moment, we see very close cooperation between um, government institutions uh, and and uh, commercial institutions, uh, commercial uh, uh, companies just like like IBM, uh, and and they are at an even footing there. It's 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 an extremely important that parties understand that uh, you have to work together. That it's only um, uh, blockchain only uh, works if it's an ecosystem that's supporting it, and um, and even uh, and and that's also very interesting. Uh, I think somebody mentioned um, you, you mentioned that, Paul about the Kitty Hawk. Uh, why why would you get on the plane when 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 it doesn't do anything when it doesn't add any value? We even see in ecosystems um, parties um, participating um, with fervor uh, that even have a negative uh, um, uh, a, a negative re return on investment that they first see because they see this is a tsunami that's coming. We have to change our business models. And this is actually an enormous opportunity to do that. And by closing your eyes and saying, what's happening here in this ecosystem is at first look not good for us, maybe a tremendous opportunity and do so. So all in all, um, what's happening here in Europe is extremely uh, promising. And uh, IBM is very happy to, uh, to see that uh, the blockchain approach that we are very much uh, behind is, 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 is taking off um, by business and by government. So uh, all in all, um, good stuff that we hear here. Great. Well, I think uh, a lot of lively uh, presentations from, uh, from, from all quarters. I'd like to open up the floor for some, some questions um, and invite anyone who has a, a, a perspective they want to put across uh, for our panel. Uh, we're a little over time, but uh, we'll take a few minutes to, to take some questions. So any questions from the floor? I knew you'd all be shy, so I, I, I had one pre-prepared, uh, as is often the case with these things. Um, I think something um, that David said at the beginning sort of caught my eye, and we've talked about it a little bit, is this whole issue of the need for 
uh, individuals to, um, to assume responsibility for their own data and design systems for personal data management. And that seems to get right to the heart of the trust uh, issue. And it's possibly a place where Europe can play, from a point of principle and values, a really meaningful role in creating a framework in which individuals can build trust. Um, but how do we go about that? The, the, the threat you mentioned from China is very real for, the, for their own citizens, if not for others in time. Where, where do we begin, uh, David, with that challenge? And, and maybe others would want to contribute to that as well. I'll be quick. It it's, has to be bottom-up. It has to be decentralized. So, we, so government's role is to enable it, not to hand it down and form it and create it and you know, ship it. Um, so it's self-sovereign identity. It means you, here's the tools. You know? And so it's really, I think, uh, every bit as much about education as it is about tools and infrastructure. Any other perspectives on this issue from the, from the, panels, uh, from the panel's view? Maybe from the Commission. Um, where, where does the Commission begin to shape a context, context for this to become manifest through, through new principles or frameworks for legislation in the future? Well, I mean, one aspect of it is applying the existing framework in say, a general way, not simply to blockchain, but to the decentralized technologies. I mean, we also have decentralized machine learning, decentralized big data, uh, things with 3D printing, obviously what this enables for micro manufacturing and design. Um, on the one hand, you can take the existing, especially principle-based legislation, and you can apply it. You can look for regulatory access points where you don't have, let's say, a single controller of an enterprise or an initiative now. On the other hand, especially in a pro-innovation spirit, and this is what we're looking at for the next commission, perhaps you need something to clear the way to lower barriers, um, and perhaps you need something to give legal clarity for a new way to utilize decentralized systems, perhaps with smart contracts and with, uh, with tokenization. I'm talking again more to run a decentralized system utility tokens now rather than the investment ones, which will come probably in one way or another under investor protection legislation and markets legislation. Um, that will be a political decision made under the next commission as we emphasize. I mean, we are a political institution. I'm a civil servant and we prepare the analysis, but it will be the next parliament, the next set of commissioners, the next president that will take the decisions in that uh, direction. But right now we're very much also utilizing tools like the Blockchain Observatory and Forum, 12th of December meeting, open registration on smart contracts and legal frameworks in, in Paris. So uh, we're very much looking and analyzing, and I mean, we have, you can look for my own name, publications in the European Law Institute, IEEE, and so on, on the subject, how we're uh, proceeding with uh, our evidence-based <coughs> way forward, hopefully. Yes. Could you say something about, uh, um, as you say, that it's an important technology, uh, that we could get a fast lane um, for financial, for uh, proof of concept things? Um, because otherwise, uh, if we just follow the normal way to go, then we will be too slow anyway. So um, there, if we really want this, we probably need in certain areas uh, a fast lane to do this. Is there a way to? Uh, go this way. Could I just ask who, who, who you're asking that question on, on behalf of? 
No, no, from, from you, where you're from, excuse me. Who, who are you? Who, who you are? Oh, my, my name is Del Shah from Volkswagen. Thanks very much. I mean, a, a tool that we're very much in favor with, of course, with the caveat of subsidiarity, not to force it on every member state, but we had it in the startups and scale-ups communication as well as the FinTech Action Plan, is a tool of a regulatory sandbox where appropriate. And actually, I mean, we're moving beyond proof of concept or a small pilot. I mean, we're moving to implementation next year with uh, regulatory register sharing on the EU level, uh, RegTech. Um, so this is in a regulatory sandbox. There was a proof of concept by the colleagues at, at DG Taxid with help from uh, various uh, other parts of the commission like the Joint Research Center and DG Digit. Um, we're moving to it next year. It is an approach that is also a fast track. It's obviously not foreseen to use blockchain for sharing regulatory registers. It's not prohibited, um, but it is an experimental approach moving forward as we are doing it. We're also trying to collect evidence of barriers to rolling out blockchain. Actually, so far, thankfully, they have been actually relatively few. So that's why we're coming with, how to say, a, a great uh, deal of questions to the sectoral players who might have identified something. But uh, a sandbox approach or innovation hub approach, this regulatory experimentation, let's not say if something's not foreseen in the legislation or hasn't been used before that it's prohibited. Obviously, we do need a little bit of art in applying things like consumer protection and investor protection, which we're not giving up. And this next blockchain infrastructure is uh, foreseen to be fully in line with the general data protection regulation and network information security. This is also why we're intervening a little bit in the market to shape the market to make sure that at least governments and those players who do have to comply with this legislative framework as it is now will have tools available at least for their regulatory reporting and other, how to say, uh, public service type of uh, requirements. At the same time, as you're from industry, uh, I would very much advocate not, not to wait for uh, government uh, issues. Uh, it's wonderful what's, what's happening here, what's being facilitated. But uh, like IBM, we started with this uh, years ago um, when there was no regulatory framework or anything available and not even in sight. So, I would, I would start already. There's nothing stopping you to, for, to do that. The technology is freely available. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can only concur with what David was saying earlier. The government's role is not to necessarily impose any solutions, not to come up with all the answers, but to create the right environment so there's a framework that those that are looking for the fast lane or whatever it is that they're looking for have the ability to, to, to do that within certain parameters, yeah? But the idea is to let those that can innovate, those that are the, the technologists that are the clever people, let them get on with it and let them do what they do and we're there to support. Let me invite another question from the floor. Yes, gentleman on the far right. If you could just say where you're from as well, that'd be, that'd be fabulous. Good morning, my name is uh, Thomas Kangatona. I'm working for AIM, the International Association of Mutual Benefit Societies. So basically, um, not-for-profit healthcare insurers. Um, I'll try to um, formulate my question in a clear way. Um, when I started to uh, read about blockchain, I was thinking and I was understanding that it was all about actually connecting individuals and people so that they could actually sort of not get rid, but I mean, okay, get rid of um, all these middlemen, as you said, Mr. Siegel, before. Uh, now what I'm noticing uh, on this panel today is that it's the very organizations that a blockchain wanted to actually um, 
get rid of that are here. We, are, we see governments, we see companies, we see um, the commission, we see uh, all these public, uh, public authorities, but I just don't see uh, the individuals in here. So I was, and I didn't actually also hear much about them uh, in all your presentations. So where are they now? I mean, uh, what, where are they in the process? Uh, this is the first thing. Um, I, would, I would also think that maybe it would have been good to have them invited here, maybe as a consumer organizations to have a bit their, their point of view on the whole development. The second thing is that if you want to address and to have individuals uh, jump into the blockchain train, how do you go about uh, the, I mean, having them be literate about this thing, which is highly uh, complex and highly uh, sophisticated? Is there any way to actually just explain this to people? Um, would like to say that, yes, Patrick. Well, I mean, in our long-term vision, exactly when I mentioned uh, these diplomas and the work qualifications, this would go to the individual. Um, a couple of the other speakers touched upon it. A precursor to getting there is the implementation of EID and self-sovereign identity, which for us are complementary. A government will accept official government-issued ID, but for other things, you can use self-sovereign identity. You can control your, your own data. So, I mean, this is in a government services context, context to the individual. Further, with the stakeholder initiative that we have now, which will be run by the stakeholders, but which we're strongly encouraging, um, then this would be also for the permissionless, peer-to-peer -peer blockchains. We look to have a very active dialogue with them, how they can be enabled, how this innovation can happen in the EU in a dynamic ecosystem, as I say, but not throwing consumer protection or investor protection out, out the window. I mean, we don't want a, a complete Wild West, but we are very open to new ways of working together with these with these organizations. I mean, of course, we are a government and working in e-government services, so serving the citizen is important. Um, but uh, we want to have this massive creativity and innovation coming also peer to peer, which obviously, if it doesn't impinge on anyone's rights, can all also happen without us and without our supervision and without our control. And we only uh, encourage this. Yeah, and to add to this, uh, it's, it's a very, very good question, actually. Um, to add to this, all the people here at the table are individuals. Uh, they are also, uh, and we all went into this business because we felt something for that. And now we, but we went, we, we went into blockchain because we feel the same things that, that you feel, uh, that blockchain can be good uh, for the people. And... Um, uh, offline, we could uh, come together quickly, and I can give you some examples of uh, references that we already have with non-governmental organizations uh, that actually use blockchain to, to, make, uh, to benefit those sort of organizations. But I think it's important that it's driven from our, our own ambitions as well, and not just from the corporates and the governments. Uh, what I'd just add to that is that, uh, obviously, I'm not here representing anyone other than the government. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm here for. Uh, but uh, when we launched the regulatory framework uh, in January, since then we've had about 40 applications for firms who want to be licensed. And those firms are full of people like you described. Uh, they're the people that are trying to change things, that have worked on peer-to-peer, etc., etc. And, for example, David uh, Gnosis, who are a prediction market, are one of, those, uh, one of those firms. So we have a number of firms that represent blockchain that represent the people that created all of this uh, and they accept that in order to take this up to the next and the following steps 
that it needs to, come, needs to become a mainstream. It needs to have a set of rules that support it, that give it that legal certainty that uh, is missing without that. And that then allows them to properly plan uh, the growth and development of their businesses, whatever that may be. Can I just ask for it, um, whether there's a perspective from, from a member of the European Parliament on the panel? Because I think you're here representing the views of um, constituents who are grappling with this change and uh, probably hearing a lot from individuals that would be useful just to have reflected in the room. <clears throat> of course, there, there is not so much literacy, uh, digital literacy, but we, we discuss We've discussed a lot about fintech and how blockchain can help financial industry. And we need to talk also about financial literacy. We need to educate people to understand technology, to understand and to take profit of opportunities. But there is also a lot of danger there. It, lots of bad things can happen. And we saw with ICOs, uh, young people investing a lot uh, their money in uh, different projects and they lost their money. So, of course, we need to discuss about uh, uh, literacy, digital literacy, financial literacy, but also uh, this technology can uh, solve many problems we have in our uh, society. We can fight better against corruption, having more transparency through blockchain. We can uh, have better uh, representatives, if we have a better voting system and uh, we have more competent uh, politicians representing us, um, I think through transparency and through uh, meritocracy, we can, using blockchain and decentralizing public institutions, opening them to, to the public, to the citizens, we can have a better life for everyone. So I think it's in interest of everyone to find new ways to improve, to reinvent institutions and, uh, and everything we have uh, right now. Yeah, I, I, I totally concur with that. And, I, uh, I, uh, and to that extent, um, on one hand, blockchain um, can, can change the lives of, of, of millions of people and, and better it. Um, but also in the way of um, uh, seeing blockchain simply as a, a business process re-engineering tool on steroids. Uh, it just makes processes much more easy. So it's not, it's, it's not uh, as, as, as dramatic as, as, as changing everybody's life uh, from, from at the bottom, but it's also making, uh, taking out a lot of um, energy cost uh, and inefficiency. So that, that's also a, a tremendous value for all of us, for all European citizens. Thank you for a great question. Um, any, uh, any other questions from the, from the room? I'd, I'd like to sh shift us for a moment with, with, with another question. And, and David, you, you, you mentioned this directly, and, um, and uh, Christine Lagarde said it just, just last week, that there's a place for central banks to, to, to engage um, and, to, and to adopt their own uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, at the same time, the innovation that we've seen, um, the privately managed digital currencies have, have, have created this energy and this, um, and they've been almost a, a response to the lack of trust in, in, in large financial institutions. In order for us to really progress, progress in terms of cryptocurrency, what's the role for central banks? 
and, and, and when should that and when should we start to see their engagement? Petros. Um, one brief comment that I forgot to make on the previous comment that I think individuals will only start working with the blockchain when it's as simple as pushing a button on your on your smartphone. People are not going to learn all the details of the blockchain. And then that's a, also a little bit related to this question as well. I mean, I would make the legal note that uh, these would be digital currencies. Cryptocurrencies rely only on the cryptography. Something that would be issued by the central bank, the Rikisbank of Sweden, for instance, would be, it would be a digital currency. But what it opens up for a very interesting possibility is to put money directly into the financial system for the central bank, which is exactly the reason that, at least in Europe, the central banks are, I think, a, a little bit hesitant because we have had a fairly fragile situation with the, the commercial banking sector. And it's a question whether this is a step that they, that they want to take. Um, on the other hand, you could design something that, again, keeps the central commercial banks in the system. If this is the policy-making wish, I'm not a, a central bank policymaker, um, just speaking technologically. Um, so it was very interesting that the IMF uh, made, made this point. Technologically, I think it can be done. Um, for systems like the one that we're working on would require a digital euro, but you could also do that through commercial banks. You don't have to have the, cent commercial, the central bank doing it directly. But, I mean, it would be a, a radical disintermediation to have the central bank coming in, which is why then it becomes a, a very big policy question and a political question. But, I mean, we'll see how this, I think the technology is there, the possibility is there, but it will be the depend, depending on the way that our fiscal and economic policy develops in the, in the upcoming years, also uh, with the political leadership. Any other observations, David, on this one? Uh, Petros has it framed correctly. Um, central banks are worried about narrow money. They're worried about issuing their own, that you have an account with the central bank rather than with Barclays. And that, that's a worry, but it's one we can get over. I think it's a matter of education. I think there's always a demand for credit. Uh, credit makes the economy work. So credit multiplies base money into broad money. And even if you make all the base money you know, available to everybody, there will still be demand for credit to, to provide that multiplying factor. So I'm not worried about that. And some economists I speak to are not too worried about that. They are also worried about technology. Fair enough. We don't want to burn down, uh, you know, that many forests uh, trying to protect our money supply. I also, I also recommend looking at how much energy we expend right now protecting the euro. You know, so it's not free. It's not cheap. It's not no energy. Um, but we don't want to use proof of work to protect the euro. That that would be the wrong footing. But now we have new technology that is starting to come out of the woodworks that, is it Colin? Yep. Is also showing that we can do it for like almost no money and, uh, and make it safer. And here's something I just want to add. And I can, if I could borrow your phone for a second, just as a prop, uh, I'm not going to send any messages. Um, we could put an entire country or, or continent's money supply on the phones of its own people. And just by transacting, Every, for example, every time you send money, you validate 10 other transactions. And in this way, using a technology similar to Collins and others, uh, you know, that, that costs about the same as sending a cat picture to somebody else. There's not really much energy or bandwidth being used. 
and and we could forget about all the mechanics of central banks and just have the the population protect its own money simply by using it. That is possible. Um, so again, thinking these new thoughts and getting central bankers to think about automating their decision-making process, this is something I talk about called nominal GDP level targeting rather than mysterious meetings and pronouncements and rate hikes, uh, could actually give us algorithms that would prevent recessions. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Rodrigues. I'm from Portugal, entrepreneur in the blockchain space with a background in banking and payments. Um, I would say that the, there is a parallel between the internet and blockchain in a sense that internet was kind of like the internet of data and now we have the internet of value. And it would be a naive approach if we consider that the governance that we have for internet would be the same kind of governance that we have for blockchain. Because one thing is data, another thing is digital assets, it's money, it's our own uh, digital economy. So how would you say that governance could play a role? Because we're talking about governance here. Would it be a light approach, kind of like what we did back in the 90s with the internet, or would it be a more enforced kind of governance in order to protect uh, the rights uh, of, of the people? I, thank you. It's a, it's a great question. I think the way we'll answer it is we'll get a, a point of view from everybody across the panel, because I think you've all got something to add on this one. So, Petrus, I'll start with you. I mean, light governance, though, I mean, the Internet had uh, e-commerce. It has the Federal Trade Commission working to protect consumers in, in the U.S. And uh, I always say it's not uh, how to say anything anything goes, as we, uh, as we well know. In this case, I mean, we do have hope that initiatives like this uh, private sector roundtable that we started off would be a layer or layers of governance for interoperability between the different blockchains, and we definitely want to see this. I mean, the one that we're answering for, where the governance is the Commission and the member states, is the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure. We want to work with the other ones. We have no ambitions, uh, Machiavellian or otherwise, to, to run that, but we need someone to talk to. So we very much have high hopes for stakeholder cooperation in ensuring interoperability standards, both formal and informal, in addition to what's happening at the International Standards Organization at Sensenelec. And the perspective on the poll? As I said from the beginning, it's about building trust. It's about understanding technology. And I think we need to be responsible when we, to, to, to have a responsible approach when we discuss about regulations. So we need to understand first what we will regulate and we need more discussions, more debates, more small pilot, pilot projects, as I said. And together with you and with the European Commission, with the, with the national governments, we can create a framework that would prevent any kind of uh, bad effects of uh, this technology. I think we have to actively disenfranchise middlemen. And for an example is there's a land rush right now to build the cool crypto custodian service of the future. And I keep saying, why do we need custodians? That's what the blockchain is, a custodian. So if you want a custodian, fine, but why does it have to be required to be in the middle? We're, we're in the FCA sandbox right now. One of my companies is in the FCA sandbox, and we have to have an old-fashioned custodian 
to manage private keys that people can manage on their own. So this is the stuff I think it should be an option rather than required, and that could change a lot. The uh, comparison is, is very, uh, with internet and, and, and blockchain, is, is, is a very good one. And um, uh, we see what um, uh, the internet did for communication is what blockchain is going to do for transactions. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, if, if we see what, uh, how the internet has developed, uh, I don't want to be too gloomy, but uh, it is not exactly what we envisaged uh, <laughs> 25 years ago, let's put it like that. So there are very, very good lessons to be taken from that. Uh, um, we should do something like uh, technology assessment uh, as, as blockchain develops, uh, have a, uh, a finger on it all the time, um, are we doing the right things? Um, and, and therefore, government um, uh, uh, facilitation is, is, is very good and, and oversight. At the same time, it shouldn't be stifling. Uh, you don't want to have um, rules that stop innovation. But um, a very good balance between these two things are required. And I think that's what's happening at the moment. I think we're much more aware because how the Internet has developed that blockchain should go in a, in a very good direction in the future. Um, I suppose a short answer. Light, in my own personal view, I, I don't, I don't fully understand what light touch regulation means, and I don't understand how you can have something, a set of rules that you can't enforce. So, uh, perhaps it's the description that's wrong. So we had a lot of discussions about uh, the style of regulation that we would bring, bring in. And we used all the words, including light and codified and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and we ended up with a principles-based approach. And why did we end up with that? We ended up with that because we felt that this space is changing and evolving very, very quickly. And we needed to be able to bring in something that would keep up with that. Uh, and if we had a very clear very standard set of rules that didn't move that we would be left behind very very quickly and we'd have to then reinvent ourselves over and over again so we have something that is certainly is not light touch the rigorous process that firms who are looking to be licensed have to go through is there a lot of the stuff that they do and a lot of stuff that they satisfy the regulator with are things that we've are very commonplace so aml and uh, proper governance structures, et cetera, et cetera. All very normal stuff that, that we deal with in the traditional world. Um, so not light touch. Uh, and is it enforced? Well, it has to be enforceable to be of any value. Uh, we don't have any voluntary code, which is another thing that we, that we looked at uh, and I know has been discussed uh, uh, in, in, in other areas. Uh, you know, either you decide you want to do something or you don't do it. But the, the, the cop-out middle of the road I don't think works uh, and doesn't give that, once again, regulatory certainty to the firms that are looking for that. Well, it's great to see we're getting to grips with the, with the big questions and we're getting the entrepreneurs tackling uh, the regulators, which is exactly what we wanted in this room. So thank you for that question. We have one more from the, from the room at the back. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Alex Kahana. I'll be on the next panel on digital health. Um, listening to the conversation, I'm just um, wondering what would be considered a positive outcome of this discussion? You know, what, what, what are we 
besides exchanging, you know, knowledge and doing some IP transfer and maybe for some in the room kind of uh, deepening our understanding of uh, distributed ledger technology, what would be considered a good outcome of this meeting or this day or is, is there report that we want to, to come out or there's some general guidelines, is there some traction that's going to come out in the future? Let me give a view, first of all, from our perspective and why we wanted to convene this session. This happens far too rarely. This group of people with this diverse uh, range of perspectives that you all represent, and you'll hear during the course of the different sessions who's here, having this kind of engagement in anticipation of setting a framework for regulation or really trying to define and engage with consumers and the population at large is exactly the way to build strong and, and, and sustainable outcomes. And I think predetermining the direction we're going in would be a mistake, but having greater understanding and connectivity and a real awareness of one another's challenges is why we're here. So I think it's essential that this is an inclusive conversation where people speak up. And we hear as much from that side of the room as we do from, from this side. You raise a provocative question, but I don't think there's a singular answer, at least from, from, not from our perspective. And the association that we're bringing together uh, as part of, of this overall effort is to make sure that all voices are heard equally and that we don't see established institutional faces repeating conversations based on past practice and behaviours that may be entirely irrelevant for new technology that can completely redefine the economy of the future. That's, that's my point of view. I don't know about others. Um, do you want to? Okay. I, I, think, I, I think that's what we're, we're really about. And so that encourages, uh, you know, one or two more questions before we, we wrap up. Um, and anything else from the, from the floor? I have a question. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned register sharing. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, this is, this is reg tech. It's important to say that we're not carried away about the hype that blockchain is the solution for everything. At the same time, we are very positive. We think it's an excellent tool for a lot of things, especially where multiple partners need to see the same information more or less at the same time with assurance as, it, as to its uh, veracity and it hasn't been changed. So the European Union has some 61 registers that it shares between the uh, still 28 member states and the European Commission. And this entails big data transfers and archiving and processing and so on. And this is where one of our first proofs of concept was that sharing such a register by publishing on the blockchain on a node would be much more efficient and would have also uh, other, how to say, lower maintenance costs and other, uh, other benefits. So this is one of the first use cases that we'll start with in this European blockchain services infrastructure next year. And where justified, we'll look uh, how many of these shared registers should be moved to the blockchain. We'll look at each one individually again, not carried away about the hype. I would imagine that many of them would be justified by being on this uh, permissioned but decentralized blockchain. So I mean, the reg tech is something that we're also very much encouraging also in the interaction with the, with the private stakeholders, because one thing uh, that we are very sure of that while compliance to protect an investor or integrity of markets, et cetera, the environment um, may be needed, uh, that there are compliance costs. If these compliance costs can be lowered to the minimum possible while compliance still happens, I mean, this is uh, one of those rare win-win. So we're definitely on this route. Which, which registers? Just for you. 
First ones are uh, ones under DG, DG tax hood, which is uh, things to do with uh, value-added tax and customs. And, and this is just wonderful, because it's really wonderful, because uh, imagine at the moment you have 27 or 28 uh, registries. Uh, that means that, that you in principle have 28 times 28 minus 1 interactions. And this becomes 28 times 1 through a, the distributed ledger. I mean, it, this, this is wonderful news, really. Okay. Any other questions from the floor? Great. Thank you. I'm Anish Moritz. I'm also an investor and entrepreneur in the blockchain space. Um, so, David, uh, you made some good points about European Union falling behind. Um, they're not lagging, but you have to remember that uh, 2008, you have quite a bit of crisis. The Greece and everything come along. So it takes a long time, but you have 420 million people in one spot to grow. You cannot really compare it to Australia down under and, you know, the housing market, what's going on down there. GDPR came before blockchain came along, so we'll probably sure have an updated version soon enough. I think uh, Peter and Eva and other people who's going to be in the European Union Parliament, they're really pushing this space to go forward. I think that took the long, the right space to just sit back and watch, see how thing comes around. I think ESMA uh, coming out with the STO regulations later on or some kind of things are going to help out. So I can see what you're saying about maybe 10 years down the line, what is going to happen. But I think with the European Union, with the people quite traditional, uh, and I think with the government needs to have some kind of guiding light for the people to understand. That's not a question, but it's more about getting back to what you were saying, that the European Union is lacking behind. Um, what, David, how you see it, in the next five years, you think that's going to be possible to get done in the European Union, in, in your mind? Barely, Peter, I think we need, I think the European Central Bank caused the recession in Europe. Cost. So I'm talking about four or 500 billion euros lost forever. Um, and I have evidence for that. Uh, so, and I think, so I think actually comparisons to, to Australia are, are apt because it's a matter of managing your money supply. So yeah, I think there are a lot of amazing opportunities here, but we maybe have to get a bit out of the traditional mindset. Uh, you can't just say, well, we have an aging population, so we're not going to grow that fast. That's not going to help the next generation. Um, I'm going to draw us to a close with one last question, because we've been sitting here for a little over an hour or so, and nobody's mentioned Brexit, so it is my obligation to do that as a Brit who started working here, actually, straight out of university in the European Parliament, and this may be the last time I'm here as an EU citizen, which is very sad, but nevertheless. Um, in, in the context of the disruption that Brexit represents, is there anything in this technology that gives us hope in terms of uh, improving uh, and creating a, bo a borderless kind of uh, t trading environment with, with that disruption. Anything that the new digital or cryptocurrencies are going to give us potentially to the future that will alleviate the disruption and the uncertainty that we're getting with this and other events at, at the moment. And maybe that's a question for Gibraltar. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, borders are created by people. So if people don't want to create borders, they won't. And if this, that means that this moves forward um, within certain parameters, but in a different way, and that's what the people want, that's what will happen. Any other, any other last remarks from the panel? Yeah, yeah, I, I mentioned something about it earlier, actually. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, I think we already see, um, for instance, the Tradelands Initiative, uh, which is a blockchain about, uh, that, that, that's dealing with um, uh, international uh, transportation of uh, uh, shipping transportation. It, it, that goes across borders already. Uh, it involves, uh, it's international, it's not limited to the European Union or anything like that. It involves ports and port authorities uh, in, in, I think, about 100 countries already. And it, and it works. So, and that's only a start. It's only a few months uh, or a year down the, uh, that we're busy with that. So if that's the start, uh, we can have tremendous possibilities. And also for Brexit, where trust will be inherent to the system, where it's no... No, no negotiation anymore required, and do I, do I really trust you? No, the trust is in the system. So blockchain is going to be an essential um, way forward to make, uh, to make uh, the, the, the new relationship between the European Union and, and the United Kingdom a success.